want to talk a little bit about faith. As you may know, this year we are going to take up the 12 powers that Charles Fillmore and, and the Fillmores identified that everyone has. And we're going to be using a book that is slightly different. <clears throat> this book is called Power Up, the 12 Powers Revisited as Accelerated Abilities. This book was written by Paul Hasselbeck and Cher Holton. And we are going to take one power per month. And as you can see from the sign that Jenny made for us, this month we're taking up faith. Next month we'll take up strength, and in March we'll take up judgment slash wisdom. In April we'll take up love. In May we'll take up power. In June, imagination. July, understanding. August, will. September, order. October, zeal. November, release. And December, life. So we'll just make our way through these 12 powers over the coming year. And what's exciting for me is that in the Fillmore Center with our children and youth, we'll also be taking up these themes. So the teachers over there this morning are reflecting on faith as well. I want to put a definition as we begin in your heart and mind. And it comes from the Fillmore's. Faith is that quality in us which enables us to look past appearances of lack, limitation, or difficulty to take hold of the divine idea and believe in it even though we do not see any evidence of it except in our mind. That's clear enough, right? To see beyond what is right in front of us, perhaps a perception of lack or limitation or difficulty, and see what might be with a little nurture and love. And I also want to put this quote in your heart. It's from Thomas Merton, who was one of my guides, one of my teachers. He was a Catholic monk. And he says, Above all, faith is the opening of an inward eye, the eye of the heart, to be filled with the presence of the divine light. So let's begin. Faith. Now, I want. does anybody know about um, St. Paul's Chapel in New York, in Lower Manhattan? Madison does, because she was at the 9 o'clock service. St. <laughs> Paul's Chapel is in um, Lower Manhattan. And on September 11th, 2001, it was right next to the World Trade Center's. One side of it faces building number five, which came down. And all about it, buildings were um, destroyed. Uh, buildings were um, damaged. And the associate for ministry at St. Paul's offers a reflection that I'd like to share with you. It's a reflection about faith and what faith looks like. On September 12th, after having escaped the maelstrom of 9-11, I returned to Lower Manhattan to survey the damage to St. Paul's Chapel, just yards away from where Building 5 of the World Trade Center stood, and to find ways to be helpful in the rescue efforts. At that point, we assumed there would be many survivors, 
And as I walked down Broadway from my appointment in Greenwich Village, my heart was pounding, not knowing what I might find. I assumed the chapel had been demolished. When I saw the spire still standing, I was overwhelmed. It took my breath away. Opening the door to enter St. Paul's was an extraordinary experience. Except for a layer of ash and soot, the building survived unscathed. Many proclaimed that St. Paul's had been spared. It seemed clear to me that if that was true, it was not because we were holier than anyone else who died across the street, but it was because we had a big job to do. Taking this challenge to heart, we set up a cold drink concession and hot food service four days later for rescue workers and men from our shelters and many others proudly flipped burgers at what came to be called the barbecue on Broadway. The relief ministry at St. Paul's was supported by General Theological Seminary and the Siemens Church Institute and St. Paul's Chapel. And volunteers from all over the country came. More than 5,000 people, 5, people used their special gifts to transform St. Paul's into a place of rest and refuge. Musicians, clergy, podiatrists, lawyers, soccer moms, folks of every imaginable type poured coffee and swept floors and took out the trash, served more than half a million meals. Emerging at St. Paul's was a dynamic I think of as reciprocity of gratitude. A circle of thanksgiving in which volunteers and rescue and recovery workers tried to outdo each other with acts of kindness and love. Isn't that lovely? We tried to outdo each other with acts of kindness and love. Leaving both giver and receiver changed. The circle of gratitude was infectious. There are many stories that illustrate this kind of faith that took hold at St. Paul's. One of the earliest, which continues to inspire, is the story of the elderly African-American woman, probably in her 80s, who heard that a man working at Ground Zero had hurt his leg. So she got on the subway in the South Bronx and came all the way to Lower Manhattan. She talked her way through police lines, which was no easy feat in that moment, and came to St. Paul's. And once she was inside, now get this picture. Once she was inside, she took her cane and she presented it to the rescue workers at St. Paul. And she hobbled off to get back on the subway. In that moment, the associate minister says, in that moment, the world became a little more generous, a little more beautiful. You see, by faith, she saw not her limitations. How easy would it be for an 80-year-old woman in the South Bronx to say, the world has gone mad, I'm not leaving my apartment, I'm going to watch Dr. Phil, leave me alone. Right? Or Oprah, whoever she watches. Right? The world has gone crazy, leave me out of it. But instead of seeing the limitations and the despair and the confusion and the uncertainty and the chaos, she saw what might be. She saw how she could contribute. And she said, what I have is a cane. And my resolve. And I'll get out of my apartment and I'll go down to St. Paul's and I'll give them what I have. Faith sees and intuits what's possible. 
and the and, and, and this infectious desire to be more and more about loving kindness becomes real. That's what faith is about. That's a little image of faith that's easy to remember, isn't it? An old black woman leaving the South Bronx, getting on a train, coming into lower Manhattan, talking past the police and saying, oh no, you're not going to stop me. God bless you. I'm going to St. Paul's. I'm going to give up my cane and then I'm going to go home. Most of us will never be able to contribute in such a dramatic and powerful way, right? Probably. Most of us don't live in places where that kind of act of terrorism is going to happen. So maybe I'll tell you a story that's a little bit closer to home. This takes place in Washington, D.C. And it's about a church on the corner of 16th and R, 16th and S, on the edge of DuPont Circle, in a a neighborhood that in the late 1990s was um, difficult and uh, transitional. And, um, and faced, faced crime and other issues. But my friend and colleague Vanessa Southern tells this story about how she reclaimed a little piece of Eden. It's an act of faith. It's a faith story that I want to share with you. The children in my church and I planted a garden this spring. Now in late summer, a tall sunflower stands over the patch entertaining bees in its crowns. There is a fountain of zinnias, and until recently, a cucumber plant with imperialist zeal. Little seeds have blossomed into parsley and tomatoes, and other small seedling plants have dropped their roots deep and fast and seem ready to stay. I love this garden. It is a metaphor for so much. We started the garden to illustrate the parable of the mustard seed. And it has served this, this purpose well. Strong, proud, and lush plants have grown from tiny, unpretentious seeds. They remind us of the ability of small things to surprise us and stand in for the faith that begins inconspicuously. The faith that begins small and surprises us in the end. It's odd to think that this patch of ground was once fallow, a trash dump for local alley dwellers. In short order, it has gone from eyesore to asset. Isn't that what faith sometimes enables? To take something that looks like an eyesore and turn it into an asset? All along, it was an asset just waiting to be discovered. Listen carefully any day of the week, and you can hear the neighbors cooing in appreciation as they walk by. If in our neglect of this piece of land they saw evidence of a church not fully rooted in its community, in our care of this garden they may now see a love made manifest. And there is more. We painted a wooden sign that proclaimed that this is the children's garden and hung it over the fence behind the garden. We decided not to secure it, though there has been some vandalism. It seemed ugly to wrap such a sign in chains. Instead, we chose to keep the paint and the plywood handy for its replacement. Three months later, it's the paint that has disappeared, put away for lack of use. The original sign has remained. It is a testament to the goodwill in which we chanced to believe. It is a testament to the goodwill in which we chanced to believe. 
In addition, there is a plant of which neither the sexton nor I know the origin. Tall and fierce, it violates every aesthetic of this garden and would have been uprooted long ago had we not been intimidated by its conviction, fierce conviction, that it belongs. Just when we confirmed that, yes, in fact, this visitor was a weed, what did it do? Anybody? It flowered. It blossomed. In a gesture pure and simple, a wash of pale blooms, it made its case. There was a place for the uninvited and the unplanned in this garden. You get it? You got to keep room for the spirit, as they say. You know, you got to keep room for the unplanned and the uninvited. It's called grace. This garden is a pure miracle. Our sexton has religiously tended to its needs. He waters it twice a day and has laid a metal fence to protect it against wayward feet. Moreover, it has suffered losses. It has suffered losses, like the little plants that wilted in a May heat wave. Still, for only a few seeds, the effort of some dedicated but largely inexperienced planters, and regular care and tending, there are color and life where once there was none. There are color in life where once there was none. This is the very definition of faith. Where is there some dry ground around that you know of? This piece of Eden proves that we can bring the plainest soil to life. You see, as the Fillmore said, faith is the scene beyond what is currently there. When most people at 16th and R looked at that patch of land, They saw trash. They saw something neglected, something not worth much of anything. But faith is seen beyond what's currently there, seen beyond the scarcity and the fallow ground that is often taken for granted, and seeing instead their beauty and splendor, seeing that in fact that the fallow ground is the home of a symphony of color, and it didn't take a whole lot to get there, did it? A sexton who, who regularly tended the patch and some people, experienced or not, who planted some seeds. It took a little vision, a little intention, a dream. And what was once fallow ground is now a beautiful garden. Let's turn for just a moment to the stories that Madison told us. In that first story, Madison, I mean, Madison, in the first story, Buddha, (laughs) talk about a promotion, huh? In that first story, the Buddha is dying. And what despair, what sadness, what grief, what uncertainty must have his followers and those who loved him and knew of him, they they must have felt so disoriented. They must have felt so unsure of what the future holds. And who among us hasn't been in that place? And so as he lay dying, they came around his students and his disciples and those who were curious. 
and said, give to us before you die a word. Give to us something to cling to, something to hold on to, lest we lose ourselves in our despair. And what did the Buddha say? Make of yourself a light. Don't look to me. I've lived my life, he said. I've done my thing. I've done what I could in this difficult and beautiful and precious life. Make of yourself a light, he said. Make of yourself a light. And then in that Jesus story, he takes his friends, James and John and Peter, up to a mountain. Now, what happens in religious literature when you go up to the mountain? What is, what, what's going to happen? You're going to hear from somebody, right? Weird, crazy stuff is about to go down, right? So they go up, and all of a sudden, whatever they're doing, they're praying and they're talking. They're probably gossiping. You know what I mean? They're like, what is the deal with, you know, Luke? Why does he keep... Uh, would it kill him to pick up every once in a while, you know? Right? And they're praying and they're doing all of that. They're singing together. They've got their fire. Whatever it is works. The ritual begins to take hold. And Jesus turns to light. The divine light is present in Jesus. And then Moses and Elijah come. These are Jewish people, and great symbols have come to them. Great leaders in their story have come to them. And the Fillmore's say that Moses represents the calling forth. You ever been called forth? You ever been called out of your existence and called forth by something? That's Moses. Moses is that symbol of calling you out of Egypt calling you out of slavery, out of despair, into something better. Maybe not easier, but better. And Elijah is this strong resolve, according to the Fillmore's. He's the symbol that you can do this. You can do this. So they appear. And what happens to the disciples? They freak out, right? They freak out. They're paralyzed by fear. They can't move. They bow down in reverence and awe. And Peter, you know, God love him, he, is, he, he wants to build something. Let's build something. <laughs> Up on this mountaintop, we've seen God. We've seen Jesus. You know, God comes and says, listen to this. And so Peter is like, for Moses, for Elijah, for you, we'll make a marker. Everybody can come up here. They'll make pilgrimages. They'll track up here and know something special happened. And God says, listen to this Jesus. Listen to this one. I love this one. Listen to what he has to say. And what does he have to say? Don't be afraid. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Get up. And what do they do? They get up. And in the next scene, in those stories, they're with the crowds. They're with the kids. They're with the children. They're with the ones without names. Doing the regular work of their life. And discipleship, which is what we're going to be talking about a little bit this year as well. The best gurus, the best teachers, point back to yourself and say, make of yourself a light. 
Don't look at me. What you need is inside. Don't be afraid. Make of yourself a light. Get up. Let's go back, feed some people, and be done with it.